There we go. Nine ten. All right, we're live, everybody. Eric Anders Lang Show here, live from the PGA Show. Trent, can you give me one more count there? Yeah, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, Great. eight, nine, I'm ten. There, 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 there. Pretty good. Okay. Yep. Okay. So, Trent, as I as I mentioned earlier to the listeners of the podcast this morning, um, this is the next episode from the PGA Show. Okay. Um, we were talking about. Uh, well, I guess, you know, I, one of my favorite ways to start this off is. How do you describe your involvement in the golf industry? For example, someone comes up to you, they don't see your name tag, they don't see Trent Jones, and they don't see Robert Trent Jones the second, obviously referring to the, uh, um, what's, the, the word, what's the word when you've done a lot of work? Prodigious? Um, no. Uh, uh, sure, prodigious. Sure, prodigious. Just a tremendous. Let me see if I can pronounce it. Tremendous yeah. amount of effect that your family has had on the golf industry. Right. Um, as far as the courses that we walk on, some subjects I'm really fascinated in is sort of the puzzle that the architect prepares for the golfer. Okay. And I think commonly that's overlooked, especially in the beginning of the game. You're just trying to figure out how not to. You just don't want to. You don't want to look like an idiot. You want to enjoy yourself. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly. what it is, right? I mean, yeah. everybody feels that pressure on the first tee. That sounds yeah. like life. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty much. Um, before we get into the story that you were just telling, uh, yeah. which made me pull out the recorder immediately and do this, you were talking about going to film school, and you're talking about. USC and Los Angeles and a specific course that has a place in my heart. We filmed and played there with Nate Bergazzi, the comedian, whom you should check out if you don't know. Okay. He's really, really funny. Tennessee okay. Kid is his Netflix special. Really funny guy. Okay. And we played the Los Feliz Part 3 that you were just talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. So then, but but I, I said, stop talking. This yes, you did. said, I love shitty golf courses. Yeah. And I just, I just, I know that a lot of listeners to this podcast are new to golf. I know that if I was to break down Spyglass... Yep. They might not understand the layout at all. Right. Because I didn't. When I heard of Spyglass, I had no idea what right. it was. And that's it's hard to get into words. So when we talk about Spyglass, I'd like to sure. tell you why it's one of my absolute favorite courses in the world. But okay. first, shitty golf courses. Go. Shitty golf courses. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, so here's the thing. I'm just like any other golfer. And, you know, most, most golfers, I, there's, a, there's a statistic. I don't know where it comes from. But, you know, it's only 5% of golfers who shoot under, under 100 and ever on a a regular basis on a regular basis so you know when when we're looking at top 100 lists those are those are for like the 0.5 percent of the best golfers in the world who can withstand the test of golf i mean most golf most golfers are never going to shoot or are rarely going to shoot on average under 100 and so at least this is what i'm told and uh by like that makes me feel both very happy and very sad well yeah (laughs) maybe it does but i think here's the thing Here's the thing. As architects, our job is to make the golf course accessible to everybody. You know, we've got to make it fun so you're going to want to return. But we've also, you know, we're our firm and my grandfather, my father, my uncle, these guys work on some of the best golf courses in the world. And so we also try to make it a great test of golf. But what I love about shitty golf courses is there's no pressure. You know, it doesn't matter. You're, the, the fun, it's only about the fun factor. And what I love about going to play the Los Feliz Par 3 is that, um, over by Atwater Village, is that um, my friends used to live in that area. And so it was, like, really easy to go hook up with my buddy and just, like, run over there and play some shitty golf. And, you know, we'd, like, bring a five iron and we'd bring a wedge and we'd bring a putter and we'd just walk along and play. And I remember one morning, and this is, this is what I love about golf. You never know who you're going to meet. One morning, I'm, I'm, we get there, and we're late, and we, we have to wait a while for our tea time. 
And so there's a, there was a little, and I don't know if it's still there, because this is like 15, 20 years ago, but there was a little like coffee shop sort of snack shack over to the it's right. It's still there very much. It's still there. Yeah. Okay, okay, great. Well, so I we go over there to get something to, uh, to eat, and there's a guy who's, he looks like, you know, there's a Harley parked out front. He's got on his leathers. There's a girl or a woman standing at the at the at the snack bar, and she's got on a wife beater, like with a with black bra underneath. And she's got I mean she she's um, she's got a rickety old cowboy hat, tattoos up and down her arms. I mean she she looks to, to the stereotype of a biker chick, and she's and it's a little intimidating. I mean here we are a bunch of goofy golfers. You know we're gonna go in and like order a coke or something and and you know a sandwich to take out to the golf course. She's gonna drink like motor oil. Yeah exactly <laughs> exactly. And the best part about it is as I walk up to the counter she's got she puts her hands down on the counter to ask say like what do you have hun, and across her knuckles, on each finger is tattooed L O V E G O L F. Wow. Love golf. And I mean, so there's just nothing. I mean, who would imagine that you're going to see this woman who's the stereotype of a biker chick, who is this hardcore golfer so much so that she's tattooed across her knuckles? And I just, I just thought this is the place for me. There's a story here. These are really cool people. So then we, we get our snack. You know, we're we're talking about this person we've just encountered, and we walk out and we've got to wait and we're at the practice putting green. And there's a guy there, and he's got the biggest golf bag you've seen in your life. It looks like it's out of Caddyshack. I swear, I swear to God. And he's even got like some tunes playing out of the thing. And we're like, oh God, we're gonna follow this guy. This is gonna be ugly. And the first thing he does is he he says, hey, you guys, you you want a beer? And we we said, uh, uh, okay, where where you got beers? And he opens the bag, and there's a cooler in the bag, and he pulls out two cold <laughs> beers and hands them to us. And now we know we're following the right guy. Right. So it's it's that kind of thing. You know, once you're out on the course, it doesn't matter in a way how well maintained it is so long as you're having a really great time. Now, I'll tell you that if you're really trying to improve your game, yeah, maintenance is huge. And the work that supers, superintendents do is massive. But but ultimately, what I loved about playing at Los Feliz is that nobody really gave a shit. They were just to, there to have a really fun time together. And so that's why I love public golf. That's why I love... Um, crappy golf courses because the people that are there are really there to have a good time. They're not there to, you know, be snobs about golf. I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm so excited to have this be the beginning of the conversation because for me, that was the beginning of my conversation with golf. Right. And, and tattoos played a large part in it. Right. I was uh, I had got I want to hear that. Yeah. I well, not golf tattoos. That's really love golf is that's okay. a commitment because. Yeah. That might not last forever, depending on your temperament. Yeah. But, um, you know, I was playing golf at Roosevelt, the sort of executive, the, the oh, next yeah. up yeah, yeah, yeah. from uh, Los Feliz, right down the okay. street on yeah. Los Feliz Boulevard there. I haven't actually played it. Oh, it's magical. My, magical my buddy course. and I, it was just, it was our ritual. We just went to, to Los Feliz. Oh, but, yeah. Really, the uh, architect from Mountain Shadows in Phoenix redid the Roosevelt. And, oh, okay. You know, opened up some sight lines, um, did some new tee boxes, some great. Okay. Unfortunately, they have not stuck with the maintenance and the proper use and yeah. The tea boxes are already dirt, and you know I don't know why, but you know. Well, they get a lot of use. That's the biggest yeah. thing, and, and water is usually a big factor. Well, and they turned it to gray water, which was nice. Um, so that was a positive thing. But it took up the course for about nine months. But anyway, uh, my first time really playing golf was Roosevelt, and a guy in front of me had tats on his legs and Dickies shorts down below the knee and a flat brim hat. And I remember saying, "Oh, I'm gonna be stuck behind this guy." And when I caught up to him. 
when I caught up to him on the uh, on the second tee box there, because it's always slammed, I realized I knew him, and we were friends in a different part of the life, you know, in a different part yeah. of the world, and um, we had essentially gone to rehab together. Right. And I said, Mike, what, how are you? You know, Mega, what are you doing? You know, and and then we became golf buddies, and right there I saw that kind of three things unfold. One, the the most poignant really was an inner learning of how I had immediately shown up as a newcomer to golf stereotype already in place of what a golfer is and right. mega didn't fit that stereotype and I was scared right as the people are when I show up to the you know Peter Millar booth and it's Blazer City and I'm yeah. wearing a pullover <laughs> um, and I had immediately watched myself fall into the trap that kept me from playing golf for 30 years right so that was number one and number two was I saw what would essentially become adventures in golf which was this idea, like you said, the, the, the fun aspect of it and the, the cultural aspect of it localized. The course is merely a, a sort of a meeting place for the people who enjoy the sport of that area. Right. And then third, you know, you said you never know who you're going to meet on the golf course. That would ultimately become Random Golf Club, which yeah. is what we started in order to foster, um, you know, community building around local. And then the third thing you said is public golf, public golf yeah. courses, you know, and and we firmly believe that, you know, it'd be great to do a uh, random golf club at, um, you know, um, you know, Montauk Downs or something. But it would be not necessarily the point of random golf club. The, the point of it is that it's not about the course. It's right. about the people and the playing. And I believe, too, that like, and this might be interesting to talk to you about is, you know, in one word, what is golf? Fun. I actually thought you were going to say that. I mean, now, look, it's really, it's really easy to say fun because for some of your listeners may know the, the catchphrases that you hear a lot are firm, fast, fun, right? Right. But, you know, there's that, there's that rule of threes in Hollywood writing, right, that you, you list three things and the most important one is the third one you list. And I think that that's true here, firm, fast, fun. You know, it's the golf course, if we do it right, it's going to be firm and it's going to be fast, but ultimately it's going to be fun for you. And, and that's why you're going to come back and play it again and again. Because if people are running this as a business, they need you to come back and play it. And if you're going to play it, it's got to be fun. So, yeah, I mean, I, and, and honestly, that's, that's why playing at Los Feliz at the par three was so great. It was just fun. Yeah. Um, if you're hearing background noise and you're in your car on the lawnmower, uh, we're inside of the Orange County Convention Center in Orlando. Uh, Trent is... Uh, I want to talk a lot about watches. I, I've, I've, I love your watch here. And I, I kind of want to use this as a descriptor for Trent in and of himself. Oh, and, and, you know, we've got a complete navy blue outfit with uh, these sort of... What are these shoes here? These, these are, are these are Bjorns, and they're like a Scandinavian shoe. And I'll tell you, my, my aesthetic, you, you were talking about going to the Peter Millar booth and feeling intimidated. <laughs> you couldn't be more opposite. Yeah. And I like it. You're kind of a hippie. You've, a got, you've got sort of colored striped socks. The Bjorns are yeah. kind of like the socks a, are the socks are a little old. My wife would kill me. I like them yeah. though. I like them. Yeah. They've got style. They match, which is key. Yeah. And the Bjorns are kind of like a like a clog slipper, which. Is, but anyway, you were talking about you were about to <laughs> you were about to contrast yourself uh, with the golf industry. Uh, and I, want, and I want to hear you do that. I think you just did it. I think you just. I took did care it. of it for you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Well, okay. So look. Um, but the first of all, I live, in, I live in I live in Santa Cruz, California, sure. which oh, is a cool. surfer town. And, and so 
you're, you, you sound a bit like a young Bob Weir when you talk. Okay, okay. So first of all, I also have a really bad cold because I've been traveling <laughs> for quite a while. But, but I've um, I the the thing is, I'm a guy who's torn between my family heritage, which is growing up in golf clubs and and, and visiting and playing in some of the most privileged venues in the world, and who really just likes to go out and surf. And I'm a I'm a terrible surfer but i love it <laughs> and uh and i also love to ski and i you know i love to go hiking all that stuff but but so yeah the aesthetic yeah it's um it's it's not really working today but what do you mean no i love this look and even the golf shirt itself what brand is that um this is patagonia patagonia <laughs> i've looked around i noticed they don't have a booth downstairs no they don't no but they it's don't. a golf shirt nonetheless with a pocket it's kind of a washed navy and it's really yeah, beautiful yeah but you know, in There's a, a world, Patagonia outlet near my house. Is there really? Oh yeah, that's great. Yeah. In a world where we're at the PGA Show and the Wash du Jour is the uh, Rolex sub, yep. you have chosen to forego, in fact, forego that entire uh, traditional mindset, and you have a Casio. Yeah, this is a this is a fifteen dollar Casio that's <laughs> waterproof. Um, and uh, and and look, just. I have to, this is going to, you just got me into a lot of trouble. You don't know this, but my dad is an ambassador for Rolex. Is he really? Yeah. Or he, yeah, I think, or they call him a friend of Rolex. Okay. There's and, tears. And, uh, <laughs> and so right now my dad at home I'm is, not a is laughing Rolex. or crying. But, uh, but the fact is. He must have given you some watches over time. Uh, I have one watch. And tell me about he gave well, me well, first tell me about, well, I'm sorry. I keep interrupting you, yeah, but I'm just too, too fascinated. Too. Uh, why do you have the Casio if you have a Rolex in the house? Okay, so the first of all, when we build golf courses, when we go to places to start this process, there are often places if it's a resort that is maybe a little bit rougher part of the world, and and in five years time, it's going to be the place to go. But while you're out there on site, it's you know it's dirty, it's you know you're dropping stuff, you're knocking into rocks, you're in four wheel drives, getting bounced around. And or, or like sometimes even on horseback. I mean, you know, it's like so, and that doesn't happen so much anymore. But it used Don to. Quixote yeah, my God, dad. No actually, idea. my dad. My dad in Princeville. Get him to tell you the stories about surveying the land on horseback. Wow. But uh, but here's the thing. I've got this beautiful Rolex that my father gave me. He gave it to me when I bought my first house, and this is before I was in the golf. Came back into the golf industry, and he gave it to me. You were in me. film for a while. Yeah, I was in film for a while, okay. and and he gave it to me as a. It's sort of a, you've arrived, you know, you've finally done it. You've earned this house on your own. This is a wonderful thing. Um, and he gave me a Rolex. It's not even a Submariner. And it's not because it's, Day because trust. I didn't, no, I just wanted to, I just, I had said Oyster Perpetual, but it's, it's oh. a nice, it's a very small understated Rolex. And I actually really like it because it's light. And I know, and you worked on film sets for years and years. And, you know, when you're moving around, sometimes you just want something light on or, in my case, I want something that if I hit the wall like that, I just hit the wall, folks, and I with my watch. <laughs> I'm not You're worried that I'm going to hurt it, and I'm worried that I'm not going to hurt this beautiful piece of art that Rolex crafted. So the reason you're seeing me right now in a Casio is I actually thought I should, I thought to myself, I better remember to bring the Rolex and I forgot because I was just at a job site and came here and I've got to have a watch on and I'm not going to wear the Rolex there. So I love all of that. I think that's great. Yeah. And I love the idea that. So thank you, Rolex. <laughs> thank you for the Casio. But, but, <laughs> but, but, you know, and also, frankly, I don't wear the Rolex when I'm surfing because, um, you know, I, I don't want to lose a Rolex in the surf, you right. know, and the Casio, you know, it keeps on ticking. It's great. Yeah, I think you got about ten years on that battery, right? I, I don't know, man. It's it's scratched up enough to let me know that it's been a few years. <laughs> uh, what time do you have? I'm just curious. <laughs> what time? It is seven fifty-eight. 
Oh, I've got six. Interesting. I'm assuming you're right, which is scary. Oh, yeah. Hey, you are. Are you wearing a Rolex? <laughs> no, I'm not. But thank you. It's a tutor. Oh, it's a tutor. It's a tutor. Sorry, I'm sorry, tutor. I have a. <laughs> I don't I, have my glasses on. Well, it's the same company. Yeah. Okay. But I have a uh, a swatch as well that I really like. It looks a lot like that actually. Yeah. Okay. Um, swatches are great. But I was. We're not gonna. We don't need to go too deep into watches. But I was just. It just to me, if the people listening, they might see you dressed in a blazer, and I wanted to make sure that they knew that that was not the case. You've got double Patagonia in the Casio, and I love it. So, so let's talk about you. Um, I didn't realize that there was a bit of a rumspringa, where you, you know, the the oh, um, ran off and joined the circus. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't yeah, realize that yeah. you had your time in Hollywood and then yeah, came sure. back. As no, it was actually a quite considerable time. So, um, when I was a kid, uh, we, you know, it, it was it was mandatory in my household, in my father's household, that that I play golf, um, that I take lessons once a week, and that I went to the golf course and I practiced every day. And I was a country club near my home, uh, really close by, but there weren't any what, kids what there. It was mind. a Menlo Country Club oh, in, okay. uh, in Woodside, California, which is kind of the heart of Silicon Valley. And Menlo's a great course. My dad had done the remodel at that time. It's since been remodeled again. But was the original? Um, Oh, God, I hate when people ask Pop me this and I don't know. Yeah, I fail. Failed the quiz. Um, I don't remember because that was, just the, that was just the track I was on as a kid. But the, but the thing is, there weren't many kids in the club who played golf. And the, pre, the head pro was a nice guy, but he was, he was in his 60s. That beep signifies that, the, that it's 8 a.m. That, that, yeah, that beep is that my Casio, Casio watch. Wait, wait. Um, you, yeah, okay, you're on time. Uh, so, uh, I'm late. I'm a minute late. <laughs> so uh, the... Uh, the the club pro was in his 70s heavy smoker really was at the sunset of his career and the last thing he wanted to do was be on a golf course with a 12 year old kid working on his grip and um that's tough to and it was um it was sort of this is this is it was the nightmare you don't want to have for a kid in golf in that he was always nice but he was not interested he was a completely detached teacher and i would be on the practice range for an hour hour and a half practicing by myself and it was you know when you're like you know in junior high school or middle school that's the last place you want to be you want to be with your friends you want to be socializing so that i had a golf experience growing up that was and through and into high school where i finally abandoned golf for a period of time where it was just no fun yeah i could play but i was not enjoying myself when you say that was there an energy of resentment or because you were forced to take lessons by the way i, mm. I can't wait to have kids because they will be in the same way forced into the sport they will fit i will fit them in somehow because but you'll do it differently you'll make it fun you'll go play with them i appreciate that you know i mean oh i hope you eat better oh <laughs> i mean i want nothing more than that no I, but i wish that i had had that in my life well my dad is my dad <clears throat> loved to play but when you're a golf course architect there's this saying that golf course architects never retire they just stop being able to get onto a plane <laughs> and 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 there's there's truth to that. I mean, golf course architects, you know, our business is not in our office. Our business is where the next course is going to be built. Mm. And so my dad at that time was traveling. We counted one year, an average year. How many days was he away from home? And it was 276 days that the year That's that we good counted. Numbers. Yeah. And so we and so he, although he wanted to play with me and he, we would go out and play from time to time he didn't have time to sort of shepherd me through golf and my mom was really more of a tennis player 
So I didn't really have somebody to like go be my pal at the golf course. And as I explained that teaching pro, he really just wasn't into being with kids. And so that, that meant that I didn't have something to reinforce it. Now, kids golf today is incredible. What's going on with the first tee, what's going on with a lot of different golf programs is amazing. So um, I, think that the, I think that's changing. I think people have also realized that, is that the way to get kids into golf is also to get mom into golf, too, because mom has a very powerful presence in uh, the kids' lives. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess they're the, usually the primary caregiver. Yeah. So, uh, so you, so you abandoned the. Game. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, we got that. We diverged. No, no, I mean, always, this is one big uh, diversion here. Okay. You, so you. So, so I abandoned you, the game for a while. How long? I, um, over ten years. Ten years. Yeah. Wow. Didn't, so, didn't touch it. Yeah. Grips didn't touch got it. Cracked. What? Grips got cracked. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. Totally. And then, grips got and cracked. Then why did you pick it up that one day after a day? And, and just to give you context, I mean, when I was a kid, I was still around it for a long time, and I would. You know, I mean, in high school, like my dad, my summer job, actually, it's a good story. My summer job one year, my dad said, we're going to go live in Hawaii this summer. He's doing some work in Hawaii. And I was thrilled. And I, I imagined going to the beach, surfing, you know, I could go, you know, there wasn't a golf course because he was going to build it. But I was thinking, this will be great. I'll be hanging out at the beach. And then he said, I've got a job for you. And I thought, oh, awesome. And I imagined this myself. Is this is on Kauai. And I imagined myself. I don't know where, you know, this is a 15, 16, uh, I was 17, I think, 17-year-old fantasy. I imagine myself serving tropical drinks on the beach to women in bikinis. Reasonably so. Yeah, as the one Brady should. would lead you to believe it. Yeah, that is case. exactly it. Yeah, yeah that's exactly, yeah, that's right, jump the shark. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and then uh, you, so that was my, what I imagined. What I actually was doing was I was put on a crew on a golf course, and I was, digging irrigation ditches by hand in the tropical heat and with a bunch of guys who were far more qualified than I were I mean really big Samoan and Hawaiian men who were strong and I was a scrawny kid and I you know could barely lift a shovel compared to these guys and I got a really good lesson in what it takes to put a golf course together and what it means to work hard and and that was great I love that time but I did leave golf, and I went and I went off to school. I worked in uh, professional theater in New York, and then I, I assistant directed on Broadway shows. I directed regional shows. That led to me going back to film school, working in Hollywood. And all that time, I had been on the board of my dad's company. I had assisted him with some things, directing a few commercials. I had, you know, I knew enough to be helpful in marketing, maybe a little dangerous. And 2008 rolls around and the recession hits. And, and uh, my dad's company, like all the architects, had a hard time. We had to lay some guys off, some really talented guys that we didn't want to lay off, but we had to. And I, my dad needed some extra help, and I kind of raised my hand. And I thought at this meeting, I said, you know, I can help you market and sell golf courses so you can design and uh, in between my commercial gigs as a director and and as a producer and what that led to is the golf industry is just like the mafia once you're in you can't get out <laughs> and 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 the fact of the matter is i found i loved it and i found i love being back a part of this company and a part of this legacy um you know people people assume it's easy for me being with this name robert trent jones the third this fancy brand name as it were uh, to be in it, but it's not, and it's and it's, but but it's. I work just as hard as everybody else to keep our guys working on golf courses. This is a business, but it's a passion, and um, and I feel very privileged to be a part of it. You know, if I weren't, 
this is going to sound really schmaltzy, but if my grandfather hadn't become a golf course architect, I wouldn't be alive today. You know, this is what enabled him to uh, marry my grandfather. He had to demonstrate to my great to my great grandfather that he was worthy and that he could make a career, and he did. And my grandmother married him, and he, she had two great boys who became golf course architects. And now here I am. So you know, I'm just—I mean, I'm just a random blip on the screen, and I'm lucky to be here. And I'm—and that's why I care about this. I feel very, very fortunate. It's the second time you use the word "random," which is one of my favorite words. Um, well, that's why I got to come to a random golf club sometime. I, you have to. We'll yeah. do. We'll do one on 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 one of your properties there. You uh, briefly—you uh, talked about Kauai. Yeah. And I wonder um, if you know the story behind a single hole that was made off property on a four-acre piece of land at someone's home. A man named Craig T. Nelson. <laughs> you know about this story? Okay, well, well, he's a friend of the pod and a friend of mine. We play okay. a lot of golf together. Okay, so Craig, how it came to happen exactly. So I've been to Craig's home in Kauai. And I've been to the I've been to the hole that my father designed for him at his house, um, right on the north shore of Kauai. And um, I was not a part of that at all. Uh, that happened. That my dad did that as a side project, and I don't know how he and Craig came to do that hole. <laughs> but but what I do know is that I remember I was I was meeting Craig about something. I can't remember why, but I was going over to his house to see him, and. Uh, and he, I drove up into his, into his place there and I saw a, effectively a greenskeeper on a mower mowing this perfectly manicured green, you know, like he had a whole green complex in his backyard. And, and I, and I, I said, I said, Craig, I heard my dad helped you out a little bit with a putting green. Is this it? And that was the putting green and it's, and, and, uh, it was phenomenal. Now how it came to be. Craig has told you. I'm curious what he's told you. My dad will tell you. I just never asked my dad how it happened. I was just kind of flabbergasted. Yeah, we'll have to get. This is all. um, Yeah, that's an interesting story. I'm I'm excited to hear that from Bob. We, you you and I are sitting here. Oh, go ahead. There are to the random golf club concept. There's also a contractor, a, a general contractor on the island who owns a large parcel of land. He's a golf fanatic. And he has invited me repeatedly, and I've yet to do this. But he has a huge field, and he got some of the local superintendents to come up and help him craft some golf holes on his land. And he has a giant field with a couple of kind of, they're not even real putting greens, around the field. And he makes up golf shots and goes around his property hitting different golf shots. And I've always wanted to go up there and see it, because we have this idea of what we call a field of golf, which is where a place where, and we did this kind of for Stanford University's training complex, the, the Siebel Varsity Training Complex, where we put tees and greens of different styles all around a driving range. And the coaches there can go off and choose shots and they can make a par four in the middle of the driving range and say, okay, we're going to go to this green or we're going to go to that green. And you can, it was designed to help the kids practice shots that were on their tour. But what I love is that this guy did it in the field of his house and he doesn't really care if it's a great green. He doesn't care, you know, if it's well manicured. He just wanted to go play different things that were fun for him. And he, you know, he gets on his riding mower every Sunday and takes care of it. 
So if you're listening and you know me, you know that my eyes are very wide. And yeah. I have to go here. Yeah. What's the gentleman's name in Kauai? Um, uh, Rex Burrell. Rex Burrell. So, so, Rex, I'm calling you out, buddy. <laughs> I will meet Rex uh, this year, hopefully. I would love to see that. And I also do need to go to Craig's house and see the uh, the uh, RTJ uh, it's the only, singular it, hole. There's only... There's only a couple places in the world where we've done personal golf courses. You know, some golf course architects make a, a living at this, and some do it as a favor. There's. Um, Would you consider Morocco to be an example of that, or no? It's not, I was it's not really personal. No, no, no. But there's. Well, I guess there's. There's this. There's this golf course. Um, there's, believe it or not, the White House Putting Green, which you're kidding me. No, I've not heard of this. Uh, that was my dad during President Clinton's tenure. Um, my goodness! And it was done. So the White House putting green is administered by the National Park Service. <laughs> <laughs> so because it's kind of a park. Parks and Rec. And uh, and so, <clears throat> and it had originally been done. The putting green, I believe, was put in under Eisenhower. Historians would know better than I the history here. And it fell into disuse, I think, under Nixon. I don't think Nixon played much golf or didn't play golf there. And um, and I don't believe Carter was a golfer. When it, when it kind of came back around and Clinton was in office, um, my dad had heard about the putting green not being in great or not really being in any shape or even existing anymore. And Clinton was an avid golfer. And so my dad donated services to go build the White House putting green. And we had a shaper, which you should actually you should actually meet him sometime. But we had a shaper who was on site doing this, and um, and I have no idea what its current state is. You know, it's every president's different. We don't we're not going there to be buddies with all the presidents. We just did this because it was kind of a fun thing to do. Who gets this chance, right? There's so only going to be one of those. So there's Craig T. Nelson. There's the White House, and then um, years ago, my father did work for uh, the Porsche family. And uh, one of the members of the Porsche family owns a golf course in Mallorca, which we did, which is a great golf course. Um, and then he wanted some help on his home. He has a large estate, uh, and he wanted us to build some holes for him on his estate so he could practice when he was home. And uh, this gentleman said to my father, let's trade art for art. And so oh he traded my dad a Porsche for a golf course design. Which... Uh which Porsche, if I may ask? It was a 911, and it's, GT3. No, it's not a GT3, but that wasn't it. Wasn't out at that time. Oh, this is in the 70s. This is, this is no. This is in the, this is early 90s. Early I think. 90s, okay. I think I'd have to check. No, oh, wait, so wait, wait. No, it might be 2000. It might have been 2000. My dad would know. Pre 96 air cooled model. Yeah. And where is it? It's in Palo Alto. It's what in color? my. It's gray, burgundy interior. Oh, nice. Burgundy interior, interesting. Yeah, yeah, I know. My, I guess Porsche goes with burgundy quite a bit. Yeah, they do, and, but my dad. Um, it was chosen for him. And work or what do you got? I mean, just tell me. No, no, no. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a nine eleven. It's not. It's you, you look. Come have a ride in it. My dad still drives it to work. <laughs> really? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, he's 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 eighty. He's eighty years old. He doesn't drive it all the time because, you know, it's a pretty low car. But right. to get into, but he um, he loves driving it. He absolutely loves driving it. And I'll tell you. The Porsche family has gotten their money back in the amount of money he spends to maintain it because he loves that thing. Oh, that's funny. He takes yeah. the dealership. Oh, yeah. They're like, where did you get this car? Oh, yeah. Uh, Craig has a Porsche as well. He's uh, yeah. got an old one and a new one. Um, there's something about Porsches go with golf kind of. You know, there's this, it's, 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 it's tight. It's manual. It's, yeah. it's specific. Uh, it's kind of like the blade 
Well, the funny thing is my dad's owned all these cars that are involved, that are somehow involved in the golf industry. The first car he bought himself uh, in the early 70s when he started his own firm, when he left my grandfather's firm, he bought a, he bought a used Mercedes, uh, f- what was it, f- uh, 415 or something, or 315 okay. SL, and, uh, and that was his first car. So and Mercedes is a big sponsor of golf events. Then he bought a Lexus which is also a big sponsor of golfers, And he drove that Lexus into the dra- ground. He's not a guy who like has to have the new best thing. He's a, he's a, it's sort of like my Casio here. He, he, he uses it until it's totally worn out, but he loves it and he, he maintains it. And, and, um, and that's what the Porsche is. So it's so funny. Yeah. It's really three cars for him and they're all golf cars. So some origin on how Trent and I got here this morning, yeah. um, is, a couple of weeks ago, I was down in Cabo playing a new property, uh, Costa Palmas. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And um, we obviously a product of the RTJ uh, yeah. firm, and I loved it. I had a beautiful time, and 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 um, you know, then there was some uh, there there we were connected there through social media, and yep. and then uh, there was a message with a phone number on. I called it. It was you. Yep, and we talked for 15 minutes, and I could tell immediately that it would be really good to discuss things in general with you about golf. Obviously, you've already blown my mind about four times in the okay. um, 33 minutes that we've been going. I find that hard to believe, but thank you. No, no, it's very true. It's very true. I, I mean, I'm always interested in everything you're talking about, as far as sort of the other side of golf. You know, it's like it's like the dark side of the golf ball, if you will. Oh, that's good. That'd be yeah, great. That's wow, an album. You're gonna have to. Yeah, you might have to copyright that or something. <laughs> I don't know. That's, no, I mean it's the other side. You know, yeah. it's like we're shining a light on that, and that's yeah. kind of been my. Even before golf, that was always what I was interested in: is the things that aren't people aren't talking about. Yeah. Um, but I guess now, why don't we go to a quick break, and when we come back, I'd like to talk about some of the you know um, uh, other things maybe that are like I really want to talk about Spyglass, and I want to talk about some other things. But but we're gonna go to a quick break, everybody. Okay. All right, hitting you up at the ad break here. I got a couple to run through. Jones Golf Bags, y'all, made in Portland. These bags are, uh, they go back to the 70s. You're going to recognize these if you're older, and if you're not, you're going to be like, those look retro. They're awesome. Well, they are awesome, and they're also wonderfully priced. They also have some random golf club bags. Uh, We are getting a new bag up and running, so check back on the website for that. We're currently sold out of all the current bags that we have through Jones. Um, but stay tuned. You can sign up for the mailing list at randomgolfclub.com or head over to Jones Golf Bags. Follow them on Instagram, Jones underscore sports underscore co. They make the best bags in the biz. They've got dual straps, single straps. They probably have a triple strap. They've got stand bags. Um, they my One of the best is I like the original bag. I like the player series. I also like the Ranger or the Rover. One of the two. Either way, I love that bag. And I love the guys that make up Jones. Very proud to welcome a new sponsor to the Random Golf Club universe, that's Whoop. You may have seen me wearing a, quote, watch on my right wrist. That's not a watch. It's a Whoop strap, W-H-O-O-P, and they're offering uh, a discount. I don't quite know what it is. It could be 15%. I don't know. It's pro- It could be more uh, if you use the code E-A-L. And um, my experience with this wonderful device, this wearable technology, is that it helps me get better sleep. It helps me understand the strain that I'm going through throughout the day, whether I'm you know, on the bike, it connects to my Peloton, or whether I'm just walking 18 holes of golf, which, by the way, actually is pretty strenuous. I didn't really realize that's why I need a nap in the middle of the day, folks, if I play a 6 a.m. round. 
Um, but definitely go check it out. They've obviously, you probably heard the news that they gave one out to every PGA Tour player because it actually has been proven to help identify, um, you know, subtle, I guess, biometric changes in your body that could lead to uh, early um, uh, detection of COVID. So, you know, a lot of reasons to try this thing. A lot of athletes have been loving it, obviously, Rory and Justin Thomas. So check that out. All right, folks, features. Here's the thing about these socks. They're not spelled F-E-A-T. They're spelled F-E-E-T-U-R-E-S. The big thing about features is it's a small change that can make a huge difference. And we've all seen this in our swing changes, our swing thoughts, our swing tips. Maybe you change the ball. Maybe you play a vice ball. I don't know. But, uh, you know, these tiny little differences can make a huge impact on the game and features is in that family as well it's a compression sock it's used for running uh it's very breathable and uh i mean my experience with them is like have you ever had a really really good burrito right and it's just like it's not too wet it's not too dry it's perfect temperature these are burritos for your fetos i'm telling you like not they're they're breathable burritos for your fetos so Definitely uh, take advantage of this code here, folks. Anyway, coming to the end, feature socks will change how you feel about socks forever. And you can get a $10 off on your first pair of features when you use the code ERIC, E-R-I-K, at features.com, F-E-E-T-U-R-E-S.com. Promo code ERIC for $10 off your first pair. Um, anyway, just a couple notes on the sock itself. Targeted compression hugs the arch of your foot. Imagine that burrito getting down there on your feetos, keeping the sock in place and preventing it from bunching, slipping or sliding down into your shoe. Who likes that? I don't like that. They've fixed the problem that I don't like. The anatomical design conforms to the left and right shape of your foot, so get them on the correct foot, my friends. Creating an enhanced custom-like fit, kind of like a burrito. It reduces discomfort. I love reducing discomfort. Those two words are key. Also, they maximize comfort. I added that. And prevents blisters so you can focus on your game. <laughs> features features helps enhance your game so you can play harder, faster, stronger. <laughs> they wrote that. <laughs> anyway, they're good socks, I'll say. Lifetime guarantee. For his, for the lifetime of who? You or the... Features are so durable and long-lasting that they will outlive you. No, they didn't write that. That if you're unsatisfied at any point, they'll give you a replacement pair. No questions asked. Um, features is a proudly family-owned business. And this is where we hit the metal to the road. The pedal to the metal, the road to the rubber. Hi, get Hugh Gaither. Not high. I can't read. Hugh Gaither founded the company in 2002, and now he and his son, John, his both of his sons, John and Joe, own and operate the company in North Kakalaka, Carolina. Their mission is to create products that help you achieve your personal best. I can get down with that. Let's, let's support Hugh, John, and Joe in their mission of reducing discomfort. Um, no, but seriously, check out features, F-E-E-T-U-R-E-S. Use the code ERIC to get 10 bucks off and support a quality family-owned business down in North Kakalaka. TaylorMade, folks. TaylorMade is a family, and it's a team. 
They've been so generous with their staff players for the Ace Cam videos for us. And obviously, the Sim Driver has changed my life. I can now I can drive the ball 7,000 yards, and it actually it hits me in the in the butt. It goes so far. Um, but definitely check out all of the things from TaylorMade. I love those guys. Vice, Vice, Vice. It's a golf ball. It's got style. It's got class. But even more importantly, it performs as good as the top performing balls for half the price. So check out the Vice commercials. You may have seen those. I don't know if you have. Maybe you haven't. I don't know. Um, we've got a random golf club ball coming out very soon. They're on a truck. I think we have – there's so many balls that they're bringing them in. I don't even know how they bring them in. They're probably not on a plane because it would weigh the plane down. I don't even know. Check up randomgolfclub.com for the Vice balls coming up. Precision Pro. Also big news for Precision Pro coming soon. You've heard me talk about it. I think I can definitively say we're going to be launching this in the middle of August. The Random Golf Club Precision Pro Rangefinder comes with free battery replacement for life. It's got a magnet on it. We're going to get the NX9 with the RGC branding. And then all of the other rangefinders they make are wonderful. It's a wonderful family operation up there in Cincinnati. Great crew. Um, and then we have um, Standby. All right. Now I realize why I was stumbling is because... I didn't have what I needed to have to tell you about keeps, folks. Did you know that two out of three guys will experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time they're 35? The best way to prevent hair loss is to do something about it while you still have hair left. That's the key. They didn't underline that, but I'm underlining it for you. Get treated from home. You used to have to go to the doctor's office for your hair loss prescription. Now, thanks to keeps... You can visit a doctor online and get hair loss medication delivered right to your home. They make it easy and deliver your medication every three months so you can say goodbye to the pharmacy checkout lines, not fun during COVID, and awkward doctor visits. Keeps offers generic versions of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products out there. You may have tried them before, but probably never for this price. Quite possible. Prevention is key. Keeps... Keeps treatments can take up to four to six months or more to see results, so it's important to act fast. Literally, press pause and get this. Uh, the sooner you start using Keeps, the more hair you'll save. Huh. You're not even saving money, you're saving hairs. We're splitting hairs here, folks. Okay, sorry, no stop. Find out why Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of its competitors and nearly 100,000 men. Trust, that's, a, that's an army. That's an army, folks. 100,000 hairy men, by the way. They're hairy for sure. Um, keeps, keeps, Snowball. Snowball, you have enough hair. Relax. He's hypoallergenic, so he doesn't even lose it. It's like, come on, man. It's an embarrassment of riches over there, Snowball. It's all white, I know. But you you were born with white hair. Okay, moving on. Keeps, uh, their hair loss prevention medication. Keeps treatments starts at just $10 per month. Plus, $10 a month? That's a good deal. Plus, for a limited time, you can get your first month free. Required talking points. This is written in red. Use your talking points what to guide the narrative, but to put it in your own words. Whoops, too late for that. Uh, <laughs> okay, I think we're good. Keeps.com, K-E-E-P-S.com slash Anders. That's my name, folks. That's how you get a discount. If you're ready to take action, if you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to keeps.com slash Anders to receive your first month of treatment free. That's ten bucks off, y'all. If they if you do it for a year, that's eight percent. Quick math. Uh K E E P S dot com slash Anders. 
Um, keep, uh, we uh, oh, we do keep customer before and after photos. That's cool. There's our online. You can go look at customer before and after photos. Keeps.com. K-E-E-P-S dot com slash Anders. Bunch of other stuff that they told me not to do. Pretty sure I didn't do it. Anyway, much love to y'all. Check out Keeps.com and check out all of our other partners that support RandomGolfClub.com and go to RandomGolfClub.com to check out stories, merch, community, and more. Membership coming soon. Hey, Sklar Brothers here, Randy and Jason, and we have a couple of podcasts. If you you know them or you don't know them, check them out. We do View from the Cheap Seats, which is sports and comedy, and we have a podcast called Dumb People Town where we break down stupid behavior done by stupid people in this stupid world of ours. It is hilarious. Check them both out. And now, check out this podcast. All right, welcome back, everybody. Thank you for making your way through the ad reads. Hopefully, they're new and interesting to you. Um, Trent and I, during the break... <laughs> <laughs> which was about one minute. Yep. I don't know if you spent six minutes listening to ads. Um, talking about where to go next. And, um, you know, there's two ways for me to look at this, right? Is It's just so interesting, right? Because from a branding perspective, you've got a family tree that has multiple iterations of huge impressions on the golf world. Right. Um, as, as, a, as a Jones family, right? And I know that there's some... Uh, delineation there between obviously Reese your uncle yep RTJ the second your father yep. and Robert Trent Jones senior senior is not, yeah. the, not the first senior. or a senior yeah and actually it's it gets confusing our, our firm is called RTJ two or it's like Roman numeral two and my dad is Robert Trent Jones jr. he was trying to find a way when he split off from my grandfather in the early 70s to delineate himself as a different iteration of Robert Trent Jones but not to make the firm just his name because our firm really approaches things as a team of golf course architects working under one person's vision. And, and the secret, here's the, the secret sauce of golf course architecture is that it's not one guy designing your golf course. Yes. There is a team of guys working under that person to make it happen. And um, every great golf course architect has a bunch of other architects who work for him. And a lot of, you know, all the great architects that come out to your course are very involved. But it is a team effort, and I would say we're very much a team. So that Robert Trent Jones, the second thing, sort of iterated out of us being a the, the, the next iteration of Robert Trent Jones, but also a way my dad was trying to delineate himself from my grandfather. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, because yeah. at some point, in a branding standpoint, that is, mm-hmm. that is necessary. You have this uh, world where, you know, one company has multiple companies, and it is hard to understand the difference. And to be honest with you, I was very confused for a long time in the beginning of my golf career because I went and played Montauk Downs and I was like, I love Robert Trent Jones. Right. Right. Then I played Beth Page and they're like, oh, Reese Jones redid this. And I was like, oh, who's that? Like, is that related? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then I learned about Augusta and I was like, oh, our Bobby Jones, middle initial T. That must be the same guy. And then you've got the Jones Golf Bag Company. You know, you've got all Jones, which I love. And then then I've got Petrie, which is designed by two versions of the same person, Robert Trent Jones and Robert Tyre Jones. Right, right. I'm so confused. And then you've got, you know, junior, senior, and then and then it was just all very confusing to me. So from a family tree perspective, briefly, can you can you give me an overview of of how do you want the story of like how we got our name and all that stuff back at Bobby with Bobby Jones and and well I guess yeah we will yeah, start at Peachtree so, so for those uh, we, can, we can go yeah go ahead yeah. we'll let's start with Peachtree because yeah. I have a personal connection there and okay. for me sort of as I got into golf in the beginning in the first year there was a lot of learning for me about 
what Augusta was, right? And everybody mm-hmm. was like, I was like, what's the Masters? What's this yellow icon of America with the flag? And right. and it's Mecca, and who's Robert Tyre Jones, Bobby Jones? Right, the great a amateur lawyer. Yeah. Who is this? Who is, what is this? Who's Clifford Roberts? Who's all of this? And then, oh, but then he went and did Peachtree, which he intended to be better than Augusta. Mm-hmm. And I ended up playing Peachtree, actually, during the, um, I almost said apocalypse, but the word is eclipse. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I'm really glad the former didn't happen. Yeah. yeah, I actually do have a subtle belief that I will be on a golf course during the apocalypse, and I won't be aware of it quite quite immediately well that's probably the best anesthetic you could have yeah yeah <laughs> anyway we play, we played petri during the eclipse my first time it was a okay. few years ago and on the uh i believe the 11th is the par three the shorter okay. par three over the carry over the kind of ravine there and and uh and birdied that hole at full eclipse where the shadows right. were in crescents and it was to play with my brother wow. but anyway um i think would you would you believe that Petrie would be a good place to start as far as the the families? I mean, well, it's not I mean, the first so, course so that your grandfather did. So so um, just to, just to full disclosure to your audience. So my grandfather did Peachtree with with Bobby Jones. My uncle remodeled it years ago and did a great job on it. Oh, I didn't realize they both touched it. Yeah, I believe. My, yeah, I believe my uncle was the one who came out and did did the work years ago. And then, I mean, this was many years ago. And he, you should interview him. You'd have to really talk with him. But he's. The, um, the the what happened it um, uh, what, what what happened that affected me directly is why you're calling me Trent, and and what happened is and there's this is actually in the this is in the history books for for Peachtree Golf Club, but my my grandfather was working for Bobby Jones and everybody called my grandfather Bobby he, Robert yeah you know, Robert T Jones he, my grandfather just was Robert Jones at that time and. Oh, and interesting. So, yeah, and he so was, he became Robert Trent Jones. Trent is not on his birth certificate, but it was his middle name. Well, uh, this is how it became his middle name. Wait, so literally, he was never associated with the name Trent at all. Period. As it, far as I know, it was literally your name's Robert Jones. I'm going to tell you the story my grandfather told me, and my grandfather was a great storyteller, and he modified his stories for his audience. So you may I read. I can't relate. No, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm. I, I, I full disclosure to your audience is. I'm telling you a story that my grandfather told me, and I don't know if he's always a trusted source, <laughs> because well, like he because fish. you'd rather have a good story than than a bad and accurate story. That was my grandfather's approach. I agree 100. percent So and Jim Nance has actually confirmed this with me. Okay. I don't <laughs> actually like my toast burnt, but I but I you know whatever you know this well, old yeah. burnt toast story. Okay, I, I don't know that story, but we'll come back to that I guess. He wrote but. an article about how he loves his burnt toast and he brings a picture of how burnt he wants the toast so that every restaurant can identify how burnt he really wants the toast. He wrote an article about it in Golf Digest and later someone said, "So, you know, burnt toast." And he was like, "What are you talking about?" And like, "You like your toast burnt." And he's like, "Oh, that's that's just a good story." That's just a good story. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm okay with it. Yeah. Well, so the story that my grandfather told me was this, and and this is the story my dad told me, and this is the family lore, and it's apparently in this form, in some way, in the peach tree. His, his, they have a book, a historical book about the club, and what it is is this: my grandfather was out working on the course with Bobby Jones, the famous amateur golfer, Robert Tyre Jones. They're down looking at one of the holes. I don't recall which hole it is. I'm sure that my uncle would know or my dad would know. But they get somebody comes running down to them and says, Bobby, Bobby, there's a call for you. Can you come back 
you know, come up here. And they both turned around and said, who is it? Both of them thought they were being called to. And, and Bobby Jones, the amateur golfer, turns to Robert Trent Jones, the golf course architect, and says, there's only one Bobby Jones in golf, and it's not you. It's me. And my grandfather, <laughs> being, the, being, the, and it, being the diplomat that he was and knowing how privileged he was to be working for Robert Tyre Jones, said, that's fine. You can call me, well, well, you can call me Trent, my middle name. Now, Trent isn't exactly his middle name legally. And, and I know this because when I, I spent some time living in London, and uh, both for school and then later for work. And I went to the, I guess it's the registrar's office. I, I went and looked up his birth certificate, and it's not in there. And I found, my, found the names of my great-grandparents and all of the rest. And, you know, my grandfather was, uh, came from a Welsh family, and he lived in England before move, immigrating to Rochester, New York, as a kid at six years old. And one of the places he was near, and this is, again, this is a story my grandfather told me. There's a book written about my grandfather, Difficult Par, that the story may be written in there differently. I actually haven't read that part of the book. I don't know if that's, this is, there's different accountings. But the story my grandfather told me was um, that he was near the Trent River in England, which is an indust at that time was an industrial wasteland. It was like the Cuyahoga River, you know, and you know, as a, through Ohio, you know, it was a really horrible, polluted place. But that he told kids asked him in Rochester, "Where are you from?" And he, he told them that he was from near the Trent River, and he they called him Trent and Trenty, and they in he at one point. And this is me sitting there when he's like in his 90s. He's telling me these stories when I'm visiting visiting him in Florida. And he said, I think they might have been making fun of me because it was a really crappy place to be from. You know, they're making fun of him <laughs> as an immigrant coming from this crappy part of England at that time. And so he was nicknamed Trent and it stuck. And so I'm Robert Trent Jones because I'm named after a shitty river in England or at that time a <laughs> shitty river in England. It's kind of like imagine imagine that you named your child Mississippi. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's and that's kind yeah. of how it happens. So in a way that that is a story that I was told. Now, there are multiple iterations of this story. But basically, because of Bobby Jones, the amateur golfer, I'm named after a, what was at that time a polluted river in England. <laughs> and I hear it's much nicer now. That kind of fits your vibe, though. You what? Know, that fits your vibe. You got the, you know, the the. The watch that will travel well that you can lose in a, I in could, a muddy I could I could put this into a polluted swamp and it would keep ticking. It'll go. It'll but I'll up. actually so with my Rolex though. So. That's that's perpetual. That's yeah, the it's perpetual. Um, that's uh, why do you think golf is so fascinating? You know what what is it about it? I mean, clearly you seem a, a person who is quickly able to find fascination with things. And after leaving it for a while and growing up in the heart of... I mean, this is what novels are written about, right? This is what some of the golf novels are written about. Why are we obsessed with this sport, right? You know, why are, I mean, I could ask the same... I'm not to turn around on you, but I could ask you the same question because you started, what, in 2010 playing golf? Yes. And you told me yesterday you're like a 4 or 5 handicap right now? I mean, that's insane. Very few people start this late in life and become that good that fast. So you are obviously obsessed. I'm and also lying. No. <laughs> you're also lying. <laughs> yeah, no. It's a good story. It's a fancy uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I think that, I think that what it is is, first of all, 
It's a game you can play by yourself. It's a game you can play with friends. It's a game you can play with all ages. I think the handicap system is brilliant. I think what the USGA and what... No, no, no but this is not. This is, everyone, this is everybody's answer. I want your answer. No, no, no. You, but, you but, can, you're, you're, okay. You've got golf in the kingdom inside you. I know it. You grew up right next to Michael Murphy. Um, you know what I'm saying, right? I mean, I'm talking about okay, it's the gonna mystery depend, of it all. It's going to depend on the day. My answer is going to depend on the day. But right now, so I broke my foot a few years ago and in a car accident. And it's had a really hard time. It's my left foot, so it's my follow-through foot. Yeah, the one that gets my, really tweaked. It gets really tweaked. And it hurts like a mother when I, when I swing. And my swing is all jacked up, and I'm playing terribly, really badly right now. And it's no secret. I just played Valderrama, and it was the most embarrassing round of my life. <laughs> but, it was, but, but the thing is, the thing is, I have this great swing coach. Her name is, I'm totally plugging her. Her name is Dodie Mazuka, and she's out of Santa Cruz, California. She's a former LPGA touring pro. And... I am working with her constantly to get over this broken foot thing that's making me get a hitch in my swing and play poorly right now. I, so you can't so here I am. Here I am, this, this kid who's got this famous family lineage, and I have the same problems that every one of your listeners has. I'm just trying to get my freaking swing to work for me. And why am, why am I obsessed with golf? Because I'm fucking pissed off that I'm having problems with my swing now that I'm, I've you know hit 50. And after all these years, everything was fine. And this is not right. And I'm going to fix this. And that's, that's, I'm obsessed with getting better or getting back to where I was. You could call it my midlife golf crisis. I don't know. But that's, that's my personal. That's my personal challenge, and I think that's why people like golf. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. But hopefully, you're having enough fun. And if, as us as architects, hopefully, you're going to have enough fun that you're going to come back and beat yourself up again. That's beautiful. You know, it sounds like, in a word, the most fascinating part of golf is its incredible, constant difficulty. And in a way, when you when you describe it to me, that sounds so exciting. It's it's like in the storybooks when they tell you to go to the wizard on top of the mm -hmm. mountain it's only a story because it's tremendously hard yes if, if the wizard was in the middle of the market trying to sell you trinkets and advice mm. it would be worthless and so the meaning of golf is defined by its level of difficulty and that's profound and in a way it makes me immediately think of the boldness that every golfer must summon in order to mm. merely lace up their shoes and you know arrive yeah and the trick is you feel all of this pressure you feel all of this intimidation and and as i said i'm just pissed off about my swing right now and <laughs> and i mean i truly am i'm so and i'm a little embarrassed because with this name i should you know in theory i should be a much better golfer but the fact and my dad can kick my ass around the greens i mean he's an amazing short game player i heard um, he just shot his age in ireland he just shot his age at hogshead Pulled golf club the fairway. yeah he, my my dad my dad my dad hit an eagle yeah you know on a par four Rolled up at and went 80 in. years old in the middle of a member guest golf tournament at hogshead golf hogshead golf club in ireland i mean who does that that's incredible you know he, he won his flight you know, he, he kicked the ass of a bunch of younger guys. So good for him. But the, so, yes, he can beat me up around the greens. But, but, you know, you're talking about how hard it is. And I think that that is the allure, right? I mean, I mean, it's unfortunately, we all tell the same story over and over again. By we all, I mean different golfers. 
but but that is the allure but the, th the trick is or maybe it's not the allure that's that's not sexy but it's what drives us but the but the thing the the huge irony of golf is that if you're thinking that way when you're on the golf course you're going to suck yeah you're going to suck royally and then you're going to get more and more angry the whole thing about golf is you have to allow yourself to zen out um, you know, I was actually, I, to be honest, I was watching one of your videos and Samuel L. Jackson was talking about this, about how you hit the shot and you have to forget the shot and move on to the next one. Yeah. My dad, as a kid, always said, hit the ball, go find it, hit it again. He, he, you know, it's so funny because my dad, when he's, he's, I watch him be really hard on himself. Like I've watched my dad break a putter over his knee, getting ready to play with a potential client that he was so worried about getting that job back when my dad was my age. Right. And he was so worried that, that if that really good golfer who wanted him to design a golf course saw my dad play poorly, my dad was going to lose the job. And I remember my dad literally snapping that putter because he was so angry at himself. At the same time, the prescription, that might be the medicine he gave himself, but the prescription he gives me and every other golfer is go have fun, hit the ball, find it, hit it again. It's a game that's so, like, confusing in its simplicity. I mean, yeah. it's just, the simplicity is shocking. Yeah. And yet we show up and just start, you know, filling up the chalkboard. Yeah. Um, I arrive at... I'm having a hard time talking with you and differentiating between your father and your grandfather. I'll be sure. honest with you. Yeah. Um, so I guess maybe we can speak about both. Okay. And sure. I guess the experiences that I have had that exist a lot of times on the first tee, the, the first tee, the first hole is so important and frequently I think underdone and undervalued as a as an experiential part of mm -hmm. the round. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Royal Golf Dar es Salaam, mm -hmm. uh, the Red Course. I'm thinking of Spyglass. Um, I'm thinking of um, some of the wonderful courses on the Robert Trent Jones Trail in mm -hmm. Alabama that I played. That we're looking forward to doing an Adventures in Golf yeah. uh, series on this summer. Um, you know. I'm thinking of, uh, well, the first hole at Hogshead's pretty difficult, actually, I found. Uh, <laughs> in the wind. But, um, you know, I, I'm thinking of those two in particular. They have this really magical quality. And, and um, I guess briefly to talk about um, Spyglass, for those who haven't played it, you know, to describe it, in my words, I'll, I'll try. You know, the, the first hole at Spy Spyglass is this course adjacent to Pebble, owned by the Pebble Beach Company. And... For a course that you only see the ocean in the Monterey Peninsula for two or three, maybe four holes, three and a half, yeah. maybe. Yeah. Um, it's impressive that it holds its weight against the links at Pebble Beach, where you've got 18 holes of Pacific Ocean. It's so it's this subtlety, it's this kind of um, glimpse, and it just sets up for a lot of good golfers tend to prefer that course, and I find that in some ways I tend to look at the experience of playing a golf course, creating a rock garden, creating a puzzle in nature. If you can build a good golf course in the middle of the woods and you can wow somebody with those views, that, that to me is kind of the, uh, the double black diamond of yeah. architecture. If, if you can actually create, I mean, Crystal Downs is kind of similar in a way, you know, with, right. um, 
you know, Mackenzie's sort of decision to not go near the water. Right, right. Uh, was just to, to, to create a puzzle inside of this building. It's almost like the, 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 the walls that you can find yourself in create more creativity opportunities. So anyway, that first hole of spyglass, not, not the technical aspects of it being a par five downhill, moving right to left, but more the experience of what the first hole, how that plays a role in your experience of the golf course and ultimately how, you know, what is the magic of creating a golf hole really in general? I mean, I mean, I know that wow. th this is a lot, <laughs> but ultimately you have, you have a wonderful opportunity to speak about this in an open way because in some ways having stayed out of, from what I understand, the, the architectural world, yeah. well, the industry for a while, and then in general, yeah. your position in the company is not an architect. No, I run the company. You run the company. I run the company. So, I run a team of architects. So you have a way of looking at this, not from a, you're not talking about your own, mm -hmm. like, you know, yeah, and, and the way, and to, just to give your listeners some understanding of what that means, you know, we have a team of architects that works underneath my father, and we have a president of, uh, and chief design officer, Bruce Charlton, who really runs the design side of our company. Um, I am the, I run the business side of our company now, but we are a team. And when I get out to a golf course or I get to a site, I evaluate it and I start to see golf holes just like our architects do. And we talk about those things. And, and just, just a few days ago, I was out in, um, I was out in, uh, in the Balkans and I'm not supposed to say which country yet because the, our, the owner hasn't decided if he's going to build this thing yet. But, but I was walking a potential golf course with Bruce Charlton and we're talking about, you know, we're talking about this layout that we've been working on. And I do contribute to what that design is, but it is really my father and Bruce who do a lot of the day-to-day -day design. And, and the reason is I didn't spend 10 years in a back room drafting. I mean, it really takes a lot of time to get good at drawing this stuff correctly. And although I have an immense understanding of this, I think it's important to be authentic about this stuff. I'm, I'm a part of this legacy, but it is a team legacy. Now, when you get to what do I see, what do we see on the first hole or what are we thinking? What's that? You ask this question, what's the magic? I think, I think first of all, every golf course architect might have a slightly different answer to this, but, but I think it kind of comes down to a really, it comes down to that word you asked me about earlier. It's fun, right? How the hell are we going to have fun here? And what's, what's getting me excited? What makes me want to play golf on this piece of land? And my grandfather used to talk about, you know, move as little dirt as possible. Really work with the land as it is as much as you can. Now, my granddad is known for being sort of the father of modern golf course architecture. He's the first architect who had the benefit of all the heavy machinery that came back to the U.S. after World War II. So he could move tons of earth, which couldn't be done before, which is why the people talk about the classic period and how it's set into the land. It's set into the land because it had to be. There wasn't an option to move earth in quite the same way. Um, you know, my dick grandfather did runway tees for maintenance, and these are all technical aspects. When it still comes down to it, he got out runway there. Runway tees? Runway tees? Oh, you haven't? Oh, yeah. So runway tees. So, little known fact: my grandfather during World War II um, was employed. I guess it was by Civil Defense. I'm not quite sure exactly what the agency was, but. He, one of the things he did is he, you know, there wasn't a lot of work building golf courses during World War II. So what he did is he built airstrips or landing strips along the eastern seaboard. These were grass landing strips so that our fighters or bombers or our aircraft could quickly have mobility at the coast should the Germans attack the east coast of the United States. 
And my grandfather's job at that time was to help build these landing strips. And what he learned from doing that, when you're building a grass landing strip, one of the biggest questions is, how do you maintain this easily? Well, you get a gang mower, and you, and, you, and you make that thing as flat and as straight as possible, and you make it just easy to get out there and get this maintenance done. Well, what's one of the big things you need to do on, on a golf course? Well, you need, to make, you need your tees to be accessible and movable, and they have to be able to recover from the wear and tear they get. And you also want to have ease of setup. Now, my grandfather was called the Open Doctor. You know, from his work in the U.S. Opens, he was thinking, how do I make flexibility of tournament play? So what he did is he made these long tees. They weren't separate tee boxes. They were long tees, and they, they, um, they called them runway tees. Interesting. Yeah. Who so, coined the term? I'm assuming. You're I don't. He, he probably did because he was a master of marketing. But I actually don't well, it's know. Also, a great way to describe what you're doing. Yeah, but it, but it but it came out of that experience of working on on airstrips. That's so interesting. And so, and um and that's not the only way he designed golf courses. But for a time period, that is what he uh, that I mean that had the, for a certain period of time you'll see that. And you can, if you're a, if you're a Southern California listener, go out to Mission Viejo Country Club. You'll see excellent examples of runway tees. You know, you'll yeah. see them at Spyglass other places. But um, you ask that question, what's the magic? Well, the first question is, where do I want to hit my first shot? And you're looking, you know, you have certain constraints, right? And constraints are good. You know, having a land with absolutely no constraints is sometimes not a good thing. Knowing where the road is and the entry road's going to be really says to you, well, now I have options. Where am I going to put this first hole? Um, Being in sand gives you more options of what you can do because you can move sand around easily. Um, you know, it's more restrictive on the Monterey Peninsula, what you could do even in the 60s when he was building it. Um, but my grandfather was thinking strategy. He's thinking, what are the most strategic shots? What's the most fun shots I can hit? The aesthetics, I would say, for my grandfather often came second. Interesting. Yeah. So let's kind of go back a little bit to where we started. And you were talking about, uh, you know, what you, uh, you know, we were talking about the, Los Feliz Par 3, and we were talking about, you know, a a term that, you know, you were talking about crappy golf courses, and obviously that's where a lot of people get their start. You know, it's it's few and far between that get their start at these sort of, uh, you know, upper echelons of the the golf world. But, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, public golf is such a big part of my life, a big part of your fascination, um, you know, is... is, um, you know, it's wonderful to hear some murmurings here at the PGA show about the governing bodies getting more involved in municipal golf. And yeah. it's something that I really um, believe in and would love to offer my, you know, time in, in helping and stuff like that. And, and I guess I'm curious to know that how does that divide for you? Right. Because, yeah, no, that's a great question. You guys have to make money. You have a it's, business. Yeah. Yeah. So so we don't make money doing public golf. But we love doing public golf. Um, we have uh, the key to public golf is fitting into the needs of that community. Just the same way, if you're trying to design a resort golf course or a club course, it's like, what's the community that's going to play this golf course? If you're doing something new, um, we did we did uh, something called the Max in Texas, which was for the city of Laredo. A local landowner there made a hugely generous donation to the city to create this golf course because they had, I believe, six different school golf teams that were playing golf and they were going to local clubs and begging for tee times just to improve. You know, you had junior highs and high schools, huge demand for golf. 
And he saw this, and so he donated his land. We came in in there and cut our fees way down, and we designed a golf course that has returning loops that are, it has a has a three hole returning loop, I believe, a six and a nine hole returning loop. So you could have multiple golf teams out there at once practicing, and you could have multiple different kinds of golf events, and that that was really exciting for us. And uh, and it's it's they now have guys who live in Monterey, Mexico drive over the border to play this course because there's not good golf there's not good public golf in Monterey, Mexico. There's a good resort and private golf, but there's not necessarily great public golf. And so that for us was a really rewarding experience. Um, and, but there's even other things we do. Like right now we're doing uh, four golf courses, uh, four public golf course uh, master plans for the city of Spokane. Spokane, Washington owns four public golf courses. That's really unusual for one city to own that many golf it's courses. A lot, yeah. I mean, New York City, sure, or LA, or LA yeah. but but Spokane. I mean, that's incredible. And so they're trying to make a plan for how they're going to improve these golf courses on limited budgets for years and years to come. And we dramatically underbid that work. I mean, we're losing money doing this work, and I but literally losing money. Well, I'm saying that that. I, my architects could be making more money for the company elsewhere. I could have their yeah. time. Their so time could money, be yeah. their time could be spent other places and make more money. But Spokane rocks. I mean, look at. I mean, you go up there, and these guys are passionate. And the way you're wanting to t- tell golf stories with me, these are these are the random golf guys. These are the guys who sit around in the burger restaurant on the golf course, talking about the great shot they did on Tuesday and how they're going to try and recreate it today. And you know. And I love these guys because they're the salt of the earth of golf, you know, and they're the people we want to work with. And we go in there and we do a master plan and we can show them the huge amounts of money they can show on construct, do on construction to really buff this place out if they want to. But we also show them the little micro improvements that they can do, little design things, grassing lines, things that their superintendent you know, may not have considered or, you know, we can show them how to make a slight adjustment in some of the earth so that they then have that gives the superintendent massive amounts of flexibility of what they can do with that course. And that finding that value, unlocking that value for a public golf course is really special for us. I get I mean, I know it sounds nerdy, but, um, you know, the middle class in this country is getting is getting sort of pushed either people are either getting richer or they're getting poorer right now. And the middle class is thinning out. And the middle class is the heart and soul of golf. It's all these people who came back after World War II and needed something to do and played the golf courses that my grandfather and others were building and who built this game up to what it is. And it's because of people like Arnold Palmer who, who promoted it on television. That all these people came out and thought, discovered golf and love it. And there's all these guys who just want to go play golf. Maybe it's nine holes, maybe it's three holes with their kid, their son or daughter on a Saturday. And I want those guys and those gals to have a great place to go and play golf with their families and their friends for a little while. You know, I I want you to come. Don't get me wrong. I want you to come to the hogsheads of the world, which is the most amazing golf experience you could possibly have. But I also want you to be able to go to your local track and just have a really good time. I, uh, if you're in Spokane, yeah. let me know because we're going to come there now. I'm very excited about that. I, I, I will be honest with you. I wanted to end on that, but I have to do two more things. Sure. We're running out of time. Yep. Um, 
I really, we talked a little bit yesterday, maybe you're comfortable talking about this or not, we talked a little bit about Pete Dye. And yeah. He's a man that I got to spend a little bit of time with at his house. Yeah. Um, about five years ago when I was in the beginnings of it all, I had one little camera, I put it on a tripod, and I talked to him in his living room while we watched Kapalua. And we yeah. talked for an hour, that podcast is going to be coming out soon. It was part of a, a film, Be the Ball, which is yet to be released, but it's about the mental game, whatever. Yeah. Uh, wonderful time to sit down with Pete. And that was before I really got, you know, my fingernails deep inside the architecture, you know, story. Right. Um, and you offered me some context on the world of golf architecture and how Pete and your grandfather sort of um, coexisted in a way that I didn't understand. Okay. Can, can you offer me some context on that? Well, so... You know, my grandfather, when he sort of rose in prominence, he's, as I said earlier in the podcast, he's one of the first guys to have access to great, uh, great tools. You know, he had big machines that could move earth. Um, do you want me to repeat that? Oh, no. Yeah. It, we, the we, audio uh, folks, if you're listening, there is that as we as the day progresses here at the PGA show, it's getting a bit louder. There's some machines. There's some. Gentlemen's telling great stories as they pass by. So uh, please, yeah, I just, I just, I just kind of mouth. I just mouth, mouth to uh, Tarek. Do I need to repeat this? Because I didn't know <laughs> no, if you guys you could hear. Right. These microphones but are any, incredible. Anyhow, they can actually hear your thoughts. Oh, uh, they can. Well, <laughs> it is the sure SM58, the diehard of. It's a good yeah. one. Yeah. Good one, yeah. Um, anyhow, the uh, so so my grandfather, he's coming up in the world as a golf course architect. He has 50s. access. Yeah, the fifties, post World War II. He's got access to the greatest tools. You know, he's got heavy machinery is becoming something available to contractors in America post-World War II. He's, um, he really embraces the water hazard, as, as a lot of your readers or, or, sorry, listeners probably know. You know, he... There is, I, I, I'm, I can't say it, but there's a water hazard that you are listening to this. You will see it soon on TV. Um, we can't talk about it, but there's a water hazard there, that there's a there whole. There's a very RTG famous thing. golf hole... There's a very famous par three at a golf course somewhere in Georgia that will be on television soon that my father, my grandfather uh, is redesigned for the original architect of that golf course. He was asked to get lend a hand. And it's a, it's a hole that we can't talk about, but it is magically known for hole-in-ones. And it's great to skip golf balls across in practice rounds. It really rounds. is a good skipper yeah. there. Yeah. And that water wasn't there. That water, that was, a, that was not a very remarkable par three prior to my grandfather redesigning that hole. And he had the ability to do that because heavy machinery. And so oh, you, interesting. And yeah, because you could you could dig you could literally dig a hole and put water in it. <laughs> <laughs> and, so if there were a creek nearby, yes. it could feed that water. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, and it and it had somebody's name on it. So yeah. how does this relate to dye though? That, that's so, what I was gonna So you about. yesterday you were asking me like what, what, what makes Robert Trent Jones what, what what makes the Robert Trent Jones golf course? Because you can't really put your finger on it. And and die courses are so obvious. You got the railroad ties. You know, there's 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 blind shots that drive you crazy. I mean, I'm I'm re by the way for readers and not to other architects. I'm just recapping what was said to me. So please don't crucify me, my colleagues. <laughs> but 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 what but what what because there's so much more to the brilliance of Pete Dye. Um, and I mean, I'm, he really was a brilliant architect. And we're we're less for not having him here. But but my grandfather. He used to say the most important thing, there's three really important things in golf course architecture. And he drilled this into me from the time I was a little kid. He drilled it into his sons, my, my father, my uncle, and all the guys who worked for him. And it's drainage, drainage, and drainage. 
And the reason is because if the golf course doesn't shed water, nobody can go play golf. It's wet. It's, it's wet. Fun. And remember, he grew up on the East Coast, so there's summer rain. I live on the West Coast. We don't have summer rain. But on the, on the East Coast, you've got rain and you've got snow and sleet. You've got to get that water off the golf course so people can get out there and play golf. And so if you look at his early work, you'll notice they're all push-up greens. Right, they're all they're all they're elevated above, or a lot not all, but many of them are elevated above the fairways, and that's because at the time we didn't have USGA spec greens. That's the Casio watch beeping again, guys. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, East Coast. yeah, and he, he, you didn't, you didn't have, um, you know, the sand specs. You didn't have the the drainage under the greens that we have today. So the best way to get water to go up is it wants to roll downhill. Build a hill, put the green on top of it. Now, there's a lot more to it than that, but that's kind of where some of that comes from. And if you look at a lot of my grandfather's work, you know, you'll say, well, design characteristics, a lot of it had runway tees or he had push up greens, or, you know, they'll talk about target bunkering. And he was really into fair, you know, putting bunkering in later. It's at one point in his career, he evolved into the open doctrine. So the question was, how does he challenge these long hitting players who are playing U.S. Opens? And the target bunkering that he put in the fairways and how he bracketed his bunkers on either side of the fairway to really get in the heads of the golfer. I mean, when you think about it, my, my father said this. I don't know if my grandfather said this, but my father always talks about when you play golf, you're not playing alone. You're playing against the architect. Just in soccer, when, you, when there's the goalie at the other end, you're trying to make the goal and you've got to go up against the goalie. The architect is the goalie. We're, we're defending par. You are trying to, you're playing this golf course, trying to have a great time. We're trying to make a great experience for you, but we're also thinking, we're trying to get in your head and we're playing against you. Just a little bit. We want you to have fun. We want you to beat us. Ultimately, it's really great if you beat us, but, but we don't want you to beat us too badly. And so my, and my, my father, my grandfather, you know, he said this phrase that all architects today know, which is hard par, easy bogey. <laughs> you know, and it's like we want, you know, he wanted it to be hard for you. So I think in that respect, that distinguishes a lot of what my grandfather was about. And then my father sort of took it in another direction in the 70s. And my, my dad really was a champion of site-specific work. And now you hear that all the time now. Everybody's like, oh, we're a site-specific architect. We, we, we're specific to the land. And, you know, we use the phrase, listen to the land golf course architecture. What does that mean? It means you go out on the land and you try to figure out what's going to do the least amount of environmental damage. You try to figure out the best way to get the water off the golf course because it's still drainage, drainage, and drainage. It still applies. We just were able to do all of that drainage work two to three feet underground. You know, most of what a golf course architect does technically is underground. You will never see it, but it affects your playing experience immensely. You know, it's how we, it's how we set up all that drainage and, and how we set up the course so that it will maintain its shape for years to come because a golf course is a farm. It's a monocrop. It's grass. We grow grass, but you play a sport on it. And so we have to figure out how to make that farm keep its same shape for the next you know, 20 years. So you know, what we do, my dad did, is he tried to make his courses more environmentally friendly. Because when you move all that, you know, back in the 50s, people weren't thinking about the environment. Now we're thinking about runoff. What happens to the nitrates? You know, we, we've got to feed that grass. What happens when those nitrates run off of that? Where does it go? Where does that runoff water go? And how do we control it so it doesn't pollute a stream nearby? Those are a lot of the things we deal with today. 
And, and we can't, golf course architects aren't responsible for all that. The superintendents and the chemicals they choose to put on and how much they choose to put on is a huge factor in that. But we need to at least give them the tools so that they can manage that properly. So it's kind of, it's kind of nerdy and technical behind all the fun strategy stuff. I'm so into it. Um, okay, in closing, mm. I would like to pay you a compliment by asking you to do something that I ask my uh, most esteemed guests on the podcast. <laughs> invite you to take part in, um, in contributing to something that I find really meaningful. Okay. And what it involves is an impromptu letter. An impromptu letter. Letter. I would like you to... I'm going this, to dictate this, a letter right now? In this moment, I'd like you to dictate a letter. <clears throat> okay. And the first two words are... And you can make it as long or as short as you want. But the longer the better. Uh, the first two words are dear golf. Dear golf. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I am here because of you. And if it were not for this wonderful sport that you've given us, I truly don't know if I would be here. I, I literally owe my life to you, but I also am very angry at you very often. <laughs> and I'd like us to consider going to therapy together. <laughs> Couples but, but, but honestly, I go to therapy with you every time I'm on the range. And I find that, I find that we're working through these sessions pretty well together. And as much as I, and, and although there was a time in my life where we broke up, and it was for an extended period, I'm very grateful to be back together with you. It's a relationship I don't want to give up. And I'm so grateful that my wife isn't jealous of you, Golf, because we've got a good thing going on. And as long as we keep going to those, those therapy sessions, those practice sessions at the range, the, and as long as we forgive each other our missteps on the golf course, I think we can make this work. Thanks a lot. That was very good. That was, that was, uh, you got me there. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and our listeners here. And uh, everybody, thank you for listening. I think, uh, I think you'll agree this is one of my, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm sad we have to end, you know. And I'd like he says to, that to all of us guests. I, I don't. I don't. So I'm very happy to press the stop button. <laughs> no, I mean, but but I find myself just you know leaving more fascinated than we began. And I would like to discuss on some level, you know, creating. Uh, so Francois Truffaut, whom I'm sure you know as mm -hmm. a filmmaker. Filmmaker, yeah, sure. Um, he uh, was fascinated with one other film, another filmmaker, Hitchcock. Yeah. And Truffaut. Uh, um, you know, obviously busy with his own career making films, decided that as a, as a way of learning and sharing that learning as an right. open source way, would spend time with Hitchcock. And he wrote a, a, a book that's merely a series of interviews called Francois Truffaut. Okay. I'm sorry, it's called Truffaut, Hitchcock Truffaut. Okay, I've not actually read it. It's, I should it's, have, but it's, I haven't. It's almost like a manual. It's, 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 it's a transcription of uh, three days of interviews that they spent together. Okay. And um, it's got some personal anecdotes, but primarily it's question and answer. Okay. And um, it's, a, it's a fascinating manuscript that goes into the minds of two really great thinkers in that genre. Okay. And I would like to propose that uh, perhaps we could do the same thing with your family. That'd be great. And just spend days with you and your, 
your father. Get, get my dad out there, man. The yeah. stories my dad has are insane. And, and I'm not talking thing. just an episode. I'm talking a series of episodes, days of work together. I want to bring cameras, <clears throat> and I, I want to create the definitive understanding yeah. of this mark. Sure, let's let's look for a way to do that. Sure, and uh, you know, and if you want to, you, you might have to collaborate with the USGA if you want to get to my grandfather because they did a series of interviews with him. Oh, that's in the USGA uh, library or the museum that are um, pretty amazing. You know, towards the end of my grandfather's life, and uh, the, the, where they sort of dived into some of these questions with him. But absolutely, would love to do this. I'd love to volunteer my dad for this. I think he'd love to do this. Um, you are actually. Um, you know, full disclosure, having been a former filmmaker, uh, I've often thought this is the kind of thing I should do with my dad, but I've never had the time. So please do it. Somebody's got to do it. Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, well, again, thank you so much. Yeah, thank uh, you. Not just for your time here, but for your, you know, um, you know, grateful contributions to the game. Yeah, hey, and thank you to people who care and are listening. This is, this is a real honor to be here. That's great. great. All right, well, uh, see you in the chat. <laughs> Awkward.